This is episode 34 of Cinescope, and nobody wants to be cooped up here forever. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Jesse Nelson to talk about one of our favorite films, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Jesse, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well, and I am so very excited to talk about this movie because it is so much too. better than I remembered it being. <laughs> not that I thought it was bad, but it was like, I want to talk about this movie, and I hadn't seen it in so long, and yeah. now I've watched it. I'm like, wow, that sort of blew my mind a little bit. I know. I, I'm totally right there with you. So before we do get to talking about that, you were on our bonus episode earlier this week over the live-action Beauty and the Beast, but in case people haven't listened to that just yet, how about you remind us who you are? Yes. Well, I, I'm Jesse. <laughs> Hi, Jesse. Hi. I am a composer for film and TV. I currently assist... Um, Mike Kramer, who's an incredibly talented composer, please, please check him out. Um, we do Lego Star Wars, the Freemaker Adventures, and Ninjago, and other stuff. Um, and I also am one of the co-founders of the Sideshow podcast, which is, yay! <laughs> you are actually somebody who has had her name appear on TV as part of a credit, right? Yes, and it's, my name is in blue! In that is Star amazing. Star Wars blue. Yeah. I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. And uh, th that's cool. We got a famous person on the show. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go ahead and advance along. So I want to remind everybody out there that Anchor is a thing. And we have a station over there. And I'm talking about movies every single day. Today, I talked about three of my favorite Disney animated films. And I did that before I watched this, and now I kind of wish I could go back and adjust a little bit. So I hope that prepares you for this conversation just a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the link to that station will be in the show notes, so you can check it out. And then remember to go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe. Big help to the show helps us to grow the audience and to just continue going on. So, Jesse, are you ready to talk about this movie? I am so ready. Awesome. So we are talking about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was released on June 21st of 1996. It was directed by Gary Tresdale and Kirk Wise, who also directed the original 1991 Beauty and the Beast, and then went on to direct Atlantis, The Lost Empire, which is another sort of underrated Disney animated film from the early millennium. It was written by Tab Murphy, Irene Mecki, Bob Sudiker, Noni White, and Jonathan Roberts, but it was based on The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, the book. The music is by, once again, Alan Menken, who did music for The Little Shop of Horrors, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, both the 1991 and the 2017 versions, Newsies, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Hercules, Enchanted, and Tangled. And the songs are by Menken and Stephen Schwartz, who did the musical Godspell. He wrote lyrics with Menken for Pocahontas. He did songs and lyrics for Prince of Egypt and lyrics for Enchanted, and he also wrote all of the music for Wicked, the Broadway musical. So big names attached to this, great music all the way around, and I have some high praise for the music here that we will get to later. <laughs> the movie stars Tom Hulse, Demi Moore, Tony Jay, Kevin Klein, Paul Candle, Jason Alexander, Mary Wicks, Charles Kimbrough, and David Ogden Steers. So, Jesse, how about you kick us off? What was your first experience with this movie? So, the first time that I saw this, 
I was very young. I must have been, I don't know. Well, this came, well, hold on. It came out in 96. So I had to have at least been eight. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. That just gave my age away. I was at the eye doctor and I loved going to my eye doctor because he always played Disney movies. And I, we didn't have a ton of them growing up. We had the quote unquote essentials, if you will. So like The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. But this was like a newer one and I hadn't seen it. And I remember just like, I did not want to go into my appointment because I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we we got to watch this movie. Like, this is important. And then I had to go in to the appointment, and I just kept asking for the TV. So they had to turn it on in the back. <laughs> <laughs> that is so I was so good. such a needy kid. Um, it's funny, the movies that we see in the weirdest of places. Like, I think yeah. I saw The Emperor's New Groove on a demo TV at a Sam's Club. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That I is just stood there the whole totally time while my random. parents went shopping or whatever. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dentist totally. office or doctor's office. That That's pretty cool. Absolutely. And I and it stuck with me ever since. And I actually never had it as a kid. So it was kind of one of those like treasured ones where I was like, ooh, like I, I know it, but I, I don't. Um, but I remember being very moved by the music and kind of, well, terrified. <laughs> right. It, it's not entirely a child friendly musical. And it got some controversy at the time because of that. Yeah, totally. And just that even the opening it I mean, that was very jarring for me. As a kid. Well, still, even now. <laughs> right, right. My first experience, like Beauty and the Beast, I owned this movie as a kid, I think, on VHS. But also like Beauty and the Beast, it wasn't one of the staple Disney movies. Those were reserved to like Aladdin or The Lion King. Those are the movies that I watched all the time. And so I, I did watch it. I did like it as a kid, I think. But there definitely are those scary elements in this movie. But over the years, as I've grown older and learned more about music and just gotten into storytelling a lot more, my appreciation for this film has matured and grown over time. And it was it was actually the sort of mutual love we had for the cast recording of the, yes, the stage production yeah. that mm -hmm. got us together and said, you know, let's talk about this movie on the show. <laughs> It is one of those classics, and like I said, watching it today, it's climbed my list of Disney films quite a bit, so I'm really excited to dive in a little bit more. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's talk about the story. Yeah. Uh, what parts of the story do you like here, Jesse? Oh my gosh. Really kind of the whole, I, I hate to sound cliche, but the whole thing. I mean, it's it's so well written, and of course the novel was there, but also just so well executed as a film, and can't help but really, really feel for Quasimodo for so many different reasons. But- I love his character because he doesn't, well, this is more on character, not story, forgive me, but he, he's never like whining or like begging for attention. You know, he's, he's just, he doesn't know any better. And I think that Tom Hulse does such a great job with him. Uh, but to get it back to the story a little bit, sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of story, I mean, it's just so relevant for today um, and society and how quick people are to judge. There's so many things in the story. I don't know. Maybe you should lead on this and then I'll chime in because I, I, I'm just overwhelmed with the whole story. I literally just got done watching it. So okay, I'm still no kind worries. of in like, like, ooh, that was amazing. <laughs> right. Well, from the very first shot of the church, mm. the, the visuals of this, this movie are outstanding. You, you're above the clouds. You're looking down the towers of the, the, the cathedral are poking up above the clouds and you hear this choir going to town and it is amazing. <sighs> And you slowly descend to see the, the, the buildings of the city of France, of the city of Paris, excuse me. Mm. And it's, it's gorgeous from that shot onwards. You have yeah. the opening shot, you have the glimpses 
from the bell tower looking down into the city. And you also have even even the flames in the city later in the film provide this this beautiful backdrop for the story. Um, it's just one of Disney's prettiest looking animated films, I think, in every respect. But also the scene you were talking about at the very, very beginning with the, the Bells of mm. Notre Dame, the storytelling yeah. intro to the film. It it also reveals the the movie's darkness. Like this is easily the darkest movie that I think Disney has done, with maybe oh, yeah. one or two exceptions. Like the Black Cauldron back in the eighties was a dark time for Disney. Right. But this one, you see Frollo hanging a baby over a well, ready to drop him. And and yeah, and he, I mean, he essentially, depending on how you look at it, a woman dies by his hand, whether intentional or not. Right. Right. And the archdeacon of the church holds him responsible for that. Yes, and so yeah. I mean, from the very outset of the film, you see Frollo's cruelty, you see his hate for the gypsies, mm-hmm. you see his lack of guilt or compassion, mm-hmm. and essentially the only reason he lets Quasimodo live is because of the fear of God brought to him by the archdeacon himself. And actually, it's the church, the the statues on the church looking down on him and sort of representing <gasps> God, looking at him. Those those very detailed eyes that they've drawn into the church. That's what kicks off the movie, and it it's really sort of harrowing in a way. Oh yeah, those, and I remember being so scared as a kid of those statues. I also have a weird fear of statues, so that did not help. But yeah, <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean, when I was a kid watching Fantasia, I could never make it all the way through because the night on Bald Mountain scene with Chernobog. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's not a statue, but he's very gargoyle esque. Yes, and so yeah, totally. Yeah, it, that scared me a lot as a kid. But more than any other Disney film, I think or at least one any Disney film that comes to mind, this film's story is its music. Yeah. Every song really contributes in a huge way to the story of the film. So there's more story yet to come when we get to the music section, when we talk about individual characters, because so much is given to us by Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. Mm-hmm. The religious themes in this movie speak mm-hmm. to me in a big way because I am a Christian, and it it's critical of people in the church in a good way, I think, as in it makes us look into ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not just like making fun of us. It's not saying we're awful people. It's just saying reconsider how you approach the world. Totally. And how you approach prayer and your relationship with God. And in that way, it's also critical of all people. The church is the center of this whole movie. And the, the central message is essentially be kind to people. Mm-hmm. And that resonated with me a lot in this viewing, especially. So all that story stuff aside, let's go ahead and talk about characters. So how about with Quasimodo? What do you have to say about Quasimodo? Oh, man. He's he's the best. I mean, he's such a sad character, but he himself... Um, he's full of joy. Yeah, he's so, he's so full of joy because he's, you know, so naive to the world, and that's not his fault. My heart breaks for him every every time uh, I watch the film or any scene he's in. It's just it's but it's also really beautiful to watch. He's very different than I think we would expect of someone like him. He's this character who's been isolated for all of his life and told by Frollo, his mentor, quote unquote, however you want to look at him, that the world is cruel. The world is wicked. There's no one out there who would love you. Right. You would be ridiculed and criticized the moment you step outside of the, the walls of this church. And in contrast with what he's been told, he has such a kind heart. Yeah. The very first thing we see of him is aiding this little baby bird and encouraging him to try flying for the first time. He says, oh, man, it's a beautiful day. If ever there was a day for me to try and fly, it'd be today. And he says the quote, nobody wants to be cooped up here forever. 
And so he encourages this bird and the bird is released and he goes out and he's flying and everything's successful. And then Quasimodo has this moment of sort of introspection where he's like, well, there goes my my little friend who's been hanging out with me. Yeah. And now I wish I could leave here because nobody wants to be cooped up here forever. So it, it is heartbreaking. He's He's an artist. He's a craftsman. He's good with his hands. And all with this exterior of a beast, basically. Totally. The same sort of predicament that the beast in Beauty and the Beast has. Mm-hmm. And so he has this conflict between everything he's ever been taught versus waiting and wanting to spend just one day out there. Yeah. He says, I'll be content with my share. I'll have spent one day out there. Like, if I could just have one one day, one day, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. And that that is really sort of heartbreaking in a way because... One day would make that much of a difference in his life. That's crazy. But we're looking from the outside in and he's on the inside and he's living that. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, an emotionally affecting character. Yeah, totally. And then you have the whole, it's not even a love triangle because it's not confusing. Right. But you have you have Quasimodo falling for Esmeralda. And as much as that hurts him, he doesn't let it stop him from helping and to protecting and rescuing to the best of his ability he he rescues her from the the fire the only time he gives up is when frollo has convinced him that it is his fault that they've been captured when he leads them to the the court of miracles and in that moment he's a victim of manipulation because we'll talk about frollo as this king of manipulation yeah and then the gargoyles in that moment where he's chained to the pillars overlooking the the burning, Ugh. they say, we're made of stone. We just thought you were made of something stronger. Stronger, yeah. <laughs> and what's really cool is when you consider the stage version of the, the film, mm-hmm. the gargoyles are figments of his imagination. Right. And so in that moment, he's basically encouraging himself when they say that, right? It, it, it's yeah. him thinking, mm-hmm. okay, I can do this despite what I've been told all my life. I'm strong and I can make a difference and people can appreciate me for it and he takes that chance and it's amazing it's so and there's a whole and of course we'll go into this more later but there's a whole song actually that that, uh stephen schwartz wrote called made of stone based on that and it it is one of the showstoppers so yeah it's we'll have to come back to it because it's amazing (laughs) and one of my favorite moments with quasimodo is when he has rescued esmeralda and he carries her to the center of the church in between the two oh. towers with the, the giant round stained glass window. Yeah. And he shouts sanctuary. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And the way it moves in between the score. Oh, my gosh. It's uh, uh, yeah. I'm usually a weeping mess at that point. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is definitely so very heartfelt. And Quasimodo is just a character who, you know, I think as a kid. You know he's supposed to be deformed or everything. But Disney has in a way normalized him. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's. Very good on Disney for helping even kids to see this is a normal, this is a person. Yeah. He Mm -hmm. has, he's different, but he's a person. And so you're able to really identify with him a lot. And I I love that. Oh, yeah, totally. So let's get on to Frollo. So as opposed to Quasimodo's kind heart, you've got Frollo with the cruelty. He's self-righteous. He's manipulative. He's ruthless. He's ready to kill an infant at the start of the film right after killing its mother. Yeah. And not feeling even a lick of guilt. Nope. He's incapable of accepting blame for anything at any point in the film. Yeah. When Kazumoto's mother is killed, he says, God works in mysterious ways. And then when when he finds himself lusting after Esmeralda, he says, she's a witch. She has placed her spell on me, and this is not my fault. You know me, God. <laughs> you know me, Mary. I I am a pious man. 
and <sighs> I have been tempted by this seductress. And that that's insane. He he is it's, incapable yeah. of accepting anything as his fault. He's like the epitome of a narcissist. It's awful. It's terrible. He he uses a couple of times the phrase made an example of. And I think anybody who uses a phrase, Ugh. let's make an example of them. I, I think that's an awful person <laughs> because that, yeah. there are so many better ways to teach a lesson than by making yeah. an example of somebody. And especially in this case, there's one of those moments when he says it and he sets somebody's barn on fire just because <laughs> they might have possibly harbored people he doesn't like. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, my gosh. I, I should not be getting this angry. I'm like, <laughs> no, you should. We should all be getting this angry because, you know, <laughs> there are people like Frollo in the world and it is awful. Yes, there are. Oh, and it just I don't understand it. Yeah, I think that that his character really rang out for me this time that I viewed it again. Because, yeah, of course, as a kid, you know, I was like, yeah, he's the bad guy. He's the villain. But, you know, now as an, a much older adult. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, he's a very sick man. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I, I hope not, but I'm sure many of the people that I know probably know somebody like him or that have characteristics of someone like him. And it's it's scary and it's unfortunate. It is. And to humanize him just a little bit and give him a little bit of humanity to identify with. Mm -hmm. When he sings Hellfire, you can see how he d he is lamenting a little bit. Look yes, at these feelings yeah. I feel. I haven't felt them before. What is happening? But instead of accepting blame for that himself, he blames somebody else. And then further than that, he pursues her right. and seeks her death and her punishment right. for this feeling that has overcome him. So right. I think all of us have those situations where we feel guilt for something or there's something where maybe we were conditioned one way growing up to to think a certain way or to look at a certain group of people a certain way and we we feel that twinge but it's how we respond to that that identifies us and frollo responds by she chooses me or she chooses a fire <laughs> whoa <laughs> yeah and i think too that was something i noticed as well this time was you can you can kind of see like the torture in his face it's hard to watch but it's such a good song. <laughs> it is. And I mean, good on Disney for taking a chance and writing a song called Hellfire. Yeah, yeah. I know there was a lot of controversy on this one. And like, especially with how they were drawing um, Esmeralda dancing in the fire or whatever. Right. But, oh, man. Yeah, that's it's. I don't know if I would have the same feelings towards the show if that song was not in there. It's all about Frollo's just fear of the different. That's all it is. Different. It's so true. That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah. But he does have this excellent ending, I've got to say, yeah. because <laughs> he he stands on this gargoyle that is sticking out from the edge. He holds a sword over his head and he says, and he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit. And that that's not a real Bible verse or anything, it, but it, it sounds like he's quoting one. And he's clearly trying to quote God. He will smite them down. He will plunge you into the fiery pit. Mm. And in that moment after he says it, before he's able to swing the sword, the gargoyle crumbles beneath him. And he is plunged into the fiery pit. So it's like this this retribution, the, the <laughs> church acting against him. You don't represent me. And yes. I will be the one smiting people down. And you have just been smitten, basically. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, it was such a such a great payoff. Right. I think that's a, a great example of poetic justice. Yeah, yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> and quite dark for Disney. 
It is, but I also love that it it doesn't come at the hands of Quasimodo. Right. That is one thing. Reading up on the musical, I think that Quasimodo actually tosses Frollo over. He does. And I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that. It might play over pretty well in the musical, but I, I really like this idea of Frollo falling because of his own overconfidence. And, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, his own hubris working against him. Yeah, in the musical, it's if you think that this version is dark. Man, you got to see the musical. Holy cow. I I I was not prepared for that moment in the musical. <laughs> <laughs> what well, what about Esmeralda? Oh yeah. I mean, she was like I wanted to be her when I was I still want to be her, but yeah, I mean, I wanted to be her when I was a kid, the free spirit, the, you know, the beautiful woman, but most most importantly, she doesn't judge. Right. Like because she spent her whole life being judged as a gypsy, you know, it's again, it's it's the the uh, what's what I'm looking for. Her and Quasimodo share that in common where they, you know, they're just very kind and they're very open, even though you'd think they would be incredibly sheltered or or uh, judgmental or. Yeah, she's such a great character, too. Yeah, I looked up gypsies. So I, or maybe even like a little bit of historical significance to the gypsies and why they might have been persecuted. Mm-hmm. And basically all I could find is. They were different. <laughs> I, I, really, I, I can't find a whole lot because a lot of them are Christian. Some of them identify with other religions, but they, the, the majority, from what I can tell, have Christian beliefs. And so there was nothing that Frollo really had against them other than the fact that they were persecuted against by tradition. Mm-hmm. They were outcast. They were forced to live in poverty. They have this safe haven for themselves because they can't live anywhere else for fear of their lives. And yeah. so they were literally just persecuted for being different, for being gypsies. And Esmeralda, like you were saying, she's this other character who has this pure heart, just like Quasimodo. Her and Quasimodo and Phoebus, who we'll talk about in a second, all of the three of these characters have just these purest of hearts. And I love that. And Esmeralda is also this other example of Disney creating these awesome, strong female characters in the 90s, yes. starting yes. with starting with The Little Mermaid in 89 with Ariel. Then you have Belle in Beauty and the Beast, and you have Nala in Lion King, and you have Pocahontas, all these characters <laughs> who are just so strong and confident, and they're, they're female and strong and confident, and that is so good for Disney. It is. And I mean, there, there's a yeah. scene in this where she takes on Captain Phoebus and even though he's sort of half-heartedly playing around she does beat him oh, and she, she does totally strike does him in the face yeah thing. yeah <laughs> yeah and so she's she's very strong and she stands up to Frollo in the middle of the crowd of everybody and she is just this great strong female character who has a pure heart she sees past Quasimodo's deformities and lets him show his heart yeah. that's hiding behind the the sort of uh, rough exterior and then you have the song, God Help the Outcast. And she, oh. she prays for the poor and she prays for the marginalized, as opposed to all these regular churchgoers who are praying for wealth and fame and things for them. Mm-hmm. And so she, she knows how to approach things from a way that benefits others rather than herself. Yeah. So I, I love Esmeralda. Me too. She has, she's such a, a perfect foil to, to Frollo. And I remember God Help the Outcasts. The first time I saw the movie, that was definitely the song that like stuck out to me. I actually think that I prefer other songs now, but yeah, as a kid, that was definitely like the one I was singing when I was running around the house. <laughs> yeah, I, I think God Help the Outcast is one of those songs that really hits you hardest emotionally. 
Mm-hmm. It's not the most fun song for obvious <laughs> reasons. <laughs> Though that reserves like out there, I would probably say. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but it is a beautiful song. It's gorgeous, but it also is convicting. It is. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So then we have Phoebus, which is the fourth Kevin Klein character I've watched this weekend. Um, <laughs> but isn't he the best? I love he is. Him. He is. I love Kevin Klein. Yeah. Uh, if, if you haven't listened to the Beauty and the Beast bonus episode, I talk about how Bob's Burgers <laughs> is one of my favorite shows. And he plays a character in that show called Mr. Fish Yoder. And every time I hear Kevin Klein's voice, no matter where it is, I think of these specific lines from Bob's Burgers of Mr. Fish Yoder. And it's a curse. I can't get past it. But luckily, that doesn't take away from how much I like Phoebus as a character. So um, as I was saying earlier, he is a character with a good heart. He he gives up this promising career in order to do the right thing. He stands up to Frollo again, just like Esmeralda did, except at almost a little bit of a greater cost this time, where he, yeah. he's, well, obviously he's fired, but then he's chased down and shot down and left for dead in the river. Right. So what do you have to say about Phoebus? I totally agree 100%. And I, and I love that he comes in pretty cocky so you're not really sure at first you're like oh is this just gonna is he gonna be like a mini frollo or is he just gonna play the you know the typical cocky dude but no he i mean he really turns it around and um he becomes so endearing because because he is you know he like pokes fun at the situations and stuff but also because yeah he has such a pure heart as well and one thing I love about him extending that pure heart, yes, he does the right thing. He saves that family whose house is being burnt down by Frollo as they're sitting inside of it. And then he sees like Quasimodo's jealousy for him and Esmeralda's relationship. As yes. Quasimodo has fallen for Esmeralda, he sings the song Heaven's Light about how I never expected anybody could love me, but here I am suspecting that she might. Yeah. And he sees that Phoebus and Esmeralda have fallen for each other. He knows that Esmeralda is not going to go for him. Mm-hmm. And Phoebus recognizes that. And he says, he, he, he gives Quasimodo the credit. Yeah. So when they journey together down to the Court of Miracles, uh, he, he sees Quasimodo sort of skulking over in the corner. And he pulls him over and says, actually, I wouldn't have gotten here if it weren't for Quasimodo here. He's the one who led the way. And look at the good things he did. Previous to that, he actually points out to Quasimodo, he says, you know, Esmeralda is lucky to have a friend like you. And so he, he's he's aiming to make Quasimodo feel better as well. So yes, he's doing the right thing in regards to his work, but he's also doing the right thing in making a friend feel like he belongs as a friend. And I love that. Totally. I love that too. That was definitely one of my favorite parts again, watching when his first encounter with Quasimodo, as you were saying, when he was just like, he tells Quasimodo to tell her Esmeralda something, and then he t- looks around again, and he's like, and tell her that, you know, she's lucky to have a friend like you. I was like, oh. Right. And this is right after Quasimodo has, like, chased him down and is waving this torch in his face. He has no no reason to be kind to Quasimodo in that moment totally. because he's being entirely antagonistic. Yeah, he's holding him by the neck. like. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's actually a pretty funny scene. Also, can you put me down? Can you put me down? <laughs> <laughs> and the camera pans out, and you see him holding him. <laughs> three feet above the stairs Uh, but yeah it's it's his calm in in situations like that when he really had no reason to be the good guy he he, he could have fought back against quasimodo if he had wanted to but he doesn't and he makes quasimodo feel good instead and that's an attribute of a good character in my book so yes totally were there any other characters you wanted to mention um, those are the big four, but there there might the be another. What do you think of the gargoyles? Do you like them? I love I love the gargoyles. I love 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 them so much. 
It's so funny to hear Jason Alexander in there. It's, right. Jason he's, Alexander. He's so uh, good. Uh, Charles Kimbrough and Mary mm-hmm. Wicks. And this is this was actually Mary Wicks' last role before her I death. Um, it was released after she died. She died in 95. This came out in 96. And I cannot remember who came in and, and actually finished the role for her. I don't remember for sure either. But uh, yeah. Mary Wicks has one of those classic voices that... Yes. I think everybody knows who she is, even if you don't know the name. She was in White Christmas as the the hotel attendant, and she was in the Sister Act films as the elderly <laughs> nun, and she was in the the Little Women with Winona Ryder as Aunt March. So I think everybody knows her, even if you don't know the name. And uh, she does a great job. She's she's sort of the the normal gargoyle character, yes. the most like a person, and the one who gives the most encouragement to Quasimodo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, and I loved Clopin. Is it Clopin or Clopin? I think it's Clopin. Clopin, okay. Jeez, this is like the Chopin. Right, right. I can never say that name right, which is ridiculous, because I've, <laughs> I've played classical piano since I was two years old, and I'm still like, Chopin. <clears throat> close enough, that close enough. That one. <laughs> what, a, what a cool character. And I, I like, I love that, you know, he opens, he opens with... Notre Dame, the Bells of right. Notre Dame. He, he's sort of our narrator in a sense. Yes, yes. And actually that was originally just spoken and they said that it was too boring and so they turned it into a song, which is like crazy to me because... It is because Bells of Notre Dame is like such a great framing like song. the song. Yeah. yeah. And, and the theme is incredible and Paul Candle, whew, he's got one heck of a voice of Paul yeah, Candle's that, that singing voice. one heck of a tenor. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Every time I wait for that, the the very last note on the Bells of Notre Dame, oh, I'm yeah. just like... He oh. goes all out and it is so oh, good. Oh man, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and so Clopin doesn't have as much of a character in the animated film as much as he does in the musical, uh-huh. but he's still one of my favorites because he, I mean, he just kind of keeps the story going, but he's he's fun. He gets the opportunity to play a little bit of every kind of character. He's a narrator. Yes. He's the antagonist at one point when they first get mm-hmm. to the, the Court of Miracles. Court of Miracles. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the film, he's the one encouraging Quasimodo. He says, three cheers for Quasimodo. Yeah. And gets, leads everybody in a cheer for this new hero of the city. And yeah. so he is a cool character in, that he, in the sense that he gets to play a few different kinds of characters. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, I guess shout out to the Archdeacon, who's David Ogden Steers, oh, yeah. who was Cogsworth in the original film. Um, he's small part here, but at the very beginning in Bells of Notre Dame, he's the one who stays Frollo's hand in killing Quasimodo, infant Quasimodo. And then later in the film, he's the one who sort of harbors Esmeralda right before uh, God Help the Outcasts. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, maybe I, as a, a church official or other people in here can't help you, but there is somebody here, as in in the church, as in God, who can help you. And that's mm-hmm. what kickstarts the song, her basically praying for yeah. the helping of her people. With that, let's talk about some let's talk about some music. As if we oh. haven't been talking about music yeah, this I whole know. time. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about music and I just want to start off. I've already disclosed this to you. I think this is Alan Menken's best work. Period. Like this is his most beautiful music in my opinion. Yes, no, I I we had talked about this the other day when we were recording for Beauty and the Beast, and I was like, I don't know, because Beauty and the Beast is up there for me, and Pocahontas is really, really high up there for me as well. Mm-hmm. But man, after seeing it again, I think I very hesitantly have to agree with you. <laughs> yes, victory. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so good. I mean, it's like, if you talk about an earworm, you know, because, you know, as as a composer, you know, you always hope to write 
melodies that are going to stick in your ears. But like, th this is just, it's beyond an earworm because it's, it's so epic. And I, for me, whenever I am humming the themes or whatever, it's like I can hear the whole orchestra behind me. And I right. love that. That's so cool. Yeah, I think there's something about religious music that always brings out the best in composers. For examples, mm -hmm. you've got Handel's Messiah. You've got Mozart's Requiem, Beethoven's Ninth yeah. Symphony. All these compositions that are structured around the church, basically. Mm -hmm. And largely, that's what Hunchback of Notre Dame is. The church is the center of this whole story. It's called Notre Dame, right? And <laughs> and so you have lots of like the Catholic mass integrated yes. into this score. Yep. And you have, you have Dies Irae. They, they say Kyrie eleison all the way throughout the film, mm -hmm. which is I think is like, so help me God. I, I want to look that up so I'm not it's, misquoting. It's it's God have mercy. That's right. Thank you. So QA lays on God have mercy and all these other things all through hellfire. You have this, this yeah. classic prayer interspersed with Frollo trying to claim innocence from his lust. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, there's a lot of religious, a lot of religious stuff in the score and yeah. in, in the, the songs. And I think that's a strength to the film because with the church, you have stuff like organ and you have these massive choirs. And so, Alan Menken has this entire tool shop of yeah. of musical techniques and this 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 whole wheelhouse of these classic texts that he can draw from in order to build this into something bigger than he had done before, I think. Oh, absolutely. And what a dream job. Like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then you get the bells, like, right. just to add to it, because those, you know, that's actually like... The sound of bells or like tubular bells are one of my favorite things to use in scores. And not a lot of scores call for them. Like two. <laughs> <laughs> That's terribly inaccurate. But no, I mean, it's hard to be able to actually incorporate them in the music. And so that's another reason that the score, I mean, just the instrumentation, as you were saying, is bonkers. And I love it. It's it's. Ugh, I would kill for a job like that. <laughs> You've got the choir that opens and closes the film in the Bells of Notre Dame. And then you also have that same choral motif, the ha, etc., in Hellfire. Oh. And it, it contrasts between this joyful, happy sounding choral stuff at the beginning and at the end, like when you're supposed to feel happy at those points in the film. But then in Hellfire, it sounds desperate. Yes. It's antagonistic in a way because it's this man who's struggling with his faith and with his desire. And it's the same motif, but the way Mencken orchestrates around it Ugh. brings it in or sheds two different lights on it. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I mean, overall, the score is it's dark, it's brooding. But like I said, with the choir, it's able to be joyful and bright at many points in the film as well. And with the songs... As I already said, this every song tells a story in this movie. It really does. Yeah, you've got Bells of Notre Dame as a framing device. Out there is Quasimodo's thirst to be among people. Heaven's Light slash Hellfire is this contrast of the love Quasimodo has for Esmeralda and the lust that Frollo has for Esmeralda. And then you have God Help the Outcast, which is Esmeralda's prayer for her people. And there are a couple, one or two maybe lesser songs, if you want to consider them that way, like um, A Guy Like You. The song, mm -hmm. yeah, sung by the, the gargoyles. But aside from that, most every song in this film is very, very high on the storytelling list. And I think it's yeah. the combination of the 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 religious overtones in the score and the, that, that toolbox that he's brought to the table mm -hmm. with the storytelling in the songs that makes it, that elevates it for me so high. 
Totally. 100% there with you. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Does, this is sort of off topic real quick. Does does Phoebus sing in this one? Actually, I don't think he does. I don't think so either. No, I don't think I don't think there's a single song for Phoebus. Huh. Definitely contrasts with the stage version. Yeah. 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 That's strange. And a little strange too because Kevin Klein has proven totally that he can, can sing. sing yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. Huh. Well, anything else to say about the music? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I could probably write a book, but no. <laughs> I think I could too. I've been yeah. well, raving this have. whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. It's just, it's such a beautiful score. It is. And we're going to give you reason to go listen to more of it because we're going to talk about the musical just a little bit in a few yeah. minutes. So go, go listen. <laughs> Go, go watch. Listen. Go watch. Go, yes, go watch. Go cry your, your face off. I feel like I'm missing something here about the music, but I I got nothing. It's just, it's almost perfect. Actually, it probably is perfect. It probably is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you might say it's almost perfect. Come on. <laughs> so let's talk about some takeaways. So one of the big takeaways I got is this idea of love versus lust, right? And it's contrasted mm. with this back-to-back song of Heaven's Light sung by Quasimodo and Hellfire sung by Frollo. Quasimodo sees a person who showed him kindness in a world where nobody has ever shown him kindness. He he starts off for 20 years. He's only communicated with Frollo and he's told him that he's ugly. He's a monster. Nobody would ever love him. Then he goes down for the Feast of Fools and he's tied to this spinning wheel and is mm. thrown food at. And people do the same thing that Frollo has always said they would do. But then Esmeralda comes out and unties him, stands up to Frollo and it's somebody who has loved him, somebody who shows him love. And that contrasts with Frollo, who sees Esmeralda dance and only sees this attractive woman who can give him pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so there's this contrasting idea between these two characters who are very closely tied together, but the way they approach this woman and because of their experience in life, the way they approach this woman is so different. So it's love versus lust. And another one I had was compassion versus condemnation. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have Frollo who sees the evil in the world or a perceived evil in some cases, and he wishes to purge the world of it. He's not looking to to reform or to help or to show compassion in any way. He doesn't see evil in himself even. And we see it because, I mean, we're seeing it from the outside. But he is this character who wants to rid the world of evil. Whereas Quasimodo sees the happiness in the world and sees the joy in the world. And he's shown condemnation by Frollo. But like I just was just talking about, he's shown compassion by Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. There's that scene where they're together on the top of the cathedral. And he has told her that I'm a monster. I'm ugly. I can't go outside. And she comes up and she reads mm-hmm. his palm because she's a gypsy and says, nope, I don't see him. There's no, mo- no monster lines. So I guess Frollo was wrong about you. And maybe he's wrong about me, too. <laughs> and so it's it's all about showing compassion and showing people out there that you care and that there are people who care about them and that Frollo can be wrong in that instance too. Totally, totally. Any for you now? My very basic takeaway, you know, yours were very beautifully put and mine, mine is going to seem so boring in contrast, but the central theme is just be kind. And it's really, I always say this to people and it's very cheesy, so forgive me, but it's the easiest thing in the world to be kind to each other. So just do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not hard. It's really not hard. Well, I've got this one more that's about inside versus outside. And it's sort of along the same lines of what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. The concept of inside and outside appear in a couple of ways. There's appearance. 
So Quasimodo's exterior versus how good a person he is on the inside. Uh, yes. Yeah. And Esmeralda, who is this beautiful, in some ways, seductive woman, but that's not who she is on the inside. Totally. Mm-hmm. And then there's the idea also inside versus outside inclusion versus being an outcast by society, whether you're a gypsy or you're a hunchback or whether you're anything else that might garner you criticism for one reason or another. And there are songs that really display this as well. So you've got Out There and you've got God Help the Outcasts. Mm -hmm. Both of these songs are criticisms of people who know prosperity in some form or at least are not poor, not living on the streets, but still ask for more. Right. Right. So Quasimodo addresses this in Out There with the line, Heedless of the gift it is to be them. If I were in their skin, I'd treasure every moment, every instant. And so it, he, he says, you know, they don't know how to appreciate the situation they're in. I'm in the situation I am. And I look down on them every day. And I see the, the baker and I see the miller and their wives. And they don't know what it's like to be as prosperous as they are in this moment. I don't have that. And I want that just for an instant. I, I want that. Even if it's just for a day. And then, as I talked about earlier, Esmeralda addresses that in God Help the Outcast. Mm-hmm. There, there are the, the other churchgoers who say, I ask for wealth, I ask for fame, I ask for glory to shine on my name. And she contrasts with, I ask for nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I ask for nothing. I can get by, but I know so many less lucky than I. No. And then she closes the song with, I thought we were all children of God. We're all children of God. Why does it Ugh. matter? God help us all. The tears are going to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, I mean, the, the lyrics are beautiful here. Stephen Schwartz is so good at writing lyrics. Oh, and totally. paired with Mencken's music, they're unstoppable. <laughs> oh my gosh, um, yeah. And so there's that concept of inside versus outside. And one of the, the shots in this movie that really got to me was at the very end of the film when everything's said and done, Frollo's dead, and Phoebus and Esmeralda walk out of the front doors of the cathedral. And Esmeralda turns back and she reaches towards the camera. You know she's reaching towards Quasimodo, but the way they frame the shot yeah. is she's reaching out to you and she's reaching out to me and she's reaching out to all of us. I love and that. And this idea that, come on, let's go. Let's go be part of the world. Let's, let's let people show compassion, show people who you are. And that, that's so, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah. I, I, that, that, that shot was so masterfully done by Disney. <sighs> Where you see Esmeralda reaching out to you. <laughs> well, anything else to say about takeaways or anything like that? No, I think you beautifully covered them. <laughs> my God, they were so philosophical, and mine was just like, "Be kind." <laughs> uh, I, I showed you my notes before this. They're, yes, they're very true. dense. They fill every every single bit of the page. There was a a blank space here. I'm showing her oh, in the oh, Skype oh, camera, one. everybody. Just, just and, one blank and so space. I, 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 wrote, I wrote something in there, too, because it was too blank. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't have any of that. <laughs> no. So what about final thoughts? Final thoughts. I Well, you have swayed me, sir. I, <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, yeah, it's, it's up there now for me as one of uh, maybe his best. I'm so hesitant to say it. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a beautiful story. It rings true through today um, rings like a bell you would say oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even mean to <laughs> and if you haven't seen it yeah i i urge you very strongly urge you to go see it if you have seen it go see it because like Again, i said this yes. this it had been so long since i last watched it and i wasn't prepared to enjoy it as much as i did i knew i would enjoy watching it because i know i like the movie but this like i said jumped so high 
on my Disney animated films list. And yeah, I'm looking forward same. to probably watching it again soon because I enjoyed it that much this time around. Yes. No, I, me too. Me too. So if me raving for 50 minutes about the music in this movie <laughs> and the themes of this movie and the takeaways and all those kinds of things doesn't convince you, man, I, I guess I need to get a new job. <laughs> <laughs> Because I love this, this movie is so good. And I think everybody needs to watch this, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, whether, yeah. whether you're consider yourself a good person, whether you're a hunchback or gypsy, I don't, I don't care. This movie has so many good takeaways to just be a good person, go out there yes. and love people. Yeah. And that's it, I guess. <laughs> well, actually, I, I sort of skipped over this. Let's talk about the musical for just a second. So I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it because I haven't seen it. But there was a cast recording of the original cast that premiered at the, the La Jolla, I think it's pronounced, theater. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And that cast starred Michael Arden as Quasimodo, Ciara Renee as Esmeralda, Andrew Szymanski as Phoebus, Eric Lieberman as Clopin, and then Patrick Page as Frollo. Oh, and he was so good. What's cool about this adaptation is that it's sort of an adaptation of the Disney movie, but from what I understand, it's actually more of a re-adaptation of the book by Victor Hugo, mm -hmm, and then they just mm -hmm. kept the Disney score and put it in where it was necessary. And so all of the songs by Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz are still around, but it just it's actually a darker version of the story because it's not an animated movie, for one. They take out the, the comedic gargoyles, I believe, Instead, the gargoyles are figments of Quasimodo's imagination. Mm -hmm. And Quasimodo is actually very deaf in this version because, yes. I mean, he's been ringing the bells for 20 years. So mm -hmm. as expected, he would probably go deaf. And so most of the time when he's around other people, he can't enunciate some things very well. And he sings like that, too. But then when he's by himself and he's in his head, he comes out and he has this beautiful singing voice. And it is this cool contrast between interior versus exterior again when he's around people versus when he's alone. Mm -hmm. So you've actually seen this production, not the original cast, but you saw it. So what do you have to say about anything about it? Oh my gosh. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed. And I was very fortunate to see this as a Deaf West production. So our Quasimodo was actually deaf and he was, gosh, was he incredible. He was played by John McGinty, who was stunning. There, there is something about this is maybe the second or third Deaf West production I've seen, and there's really something special about these productions. How it works is they have a mirror on stage, so somebody else is singing for them. And my God, it was just so incredible because his mirror played one of the gargoyles, and it was really cool to see how they interacted. It was a little strange at first, but it was, but it was so great. And Dino Nicandros, who did the voice, the singing voice, was just incredible. The Hellfire, it, oh my gosh, the whole theater was just like shaking. It was so good. Yeah, that's one of the bigger organ numbers. Yes, yeah, it was crazy. And I mean, you know, they didn't have the the huge orchestra that is, of course, the original. But it still, it still sounded huge in there. And all the songs that aren't part of the Disney animated film are beautiful. They're stunning. And I'm usually really picky about that. And, uh... Yeah, if you ever get a chance to see this musical, you have to. It's so good. It's so good. And I went in a little nervous because I'm really attached to the original recording, the original cast recording. I'm a huge fan of like Andrew Szymanski and Michael Arden. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, they killed it. And it's it's I think just because it's such a well-written show, 
you really can't go wrong. Also, shout out to Wicked, because you can hear some Wicked in there, which is really cool. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, some of the new songs, you've got Rest and Recreation, which is sung by Phoebus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I read that that sort of actually becomes like a, a motif for the character throughout the, yep. the show. And then mm-hmm. you've got a song called Top of the World, which is sung by Esmeralda and Quasimodo at the top mm-hmm. of the cathedral in that scene in the film. Yes. And then you've got the song Esmeralda, which is actually the the finale of Act One. And it's a, oh, it's a great song. It is, it is, and it, some of it comes back in the finale later. Frollo singing to Quasimodo, uh, like thank God that she's dead. Well, spoiler, she dies in the musical. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mention that. Forgot to mention that as well. <laughs> <Boop>. <laughs> There's that, and then flight into Egypt and. Mm-hmm. Made of Stone, which is a song that you mentioned earlier. How about you tell us a little bit about Made oh. of Stone? Okay, so it's it's that moment that we were talking about before where the gargoyles are like, well, we just thought that you were made of something stronger. Right, it's that same moment that's taken from the film and just turned into a song. Yes, and that's essentially it. But man, it's like he's belting at the top of his lungs and he, I just, you can't not cry. If you don't cry, I mean, you're one <laughs> tough cookie because... <laughs> It's so good, and he's he's uh, in in the production that I saw. He was legit screaming. It was it was so good. It was so good. That's awesome. And one more thing about the musical, I've read that he also basically becomes Quasimodo in front of you. Yes, it's so cool. Yeah, at, at the beginning of the show, he comes on stage and he asks the song from the movie, which I wish we had talked about a little bit. But the the question oh. is, what makes a monster and what makes a man? What makes a man? Is it mm-hmm. is it physical appearance or is it internal? And we know by the end, it's the internal. It's it's how you behave towards others that makes you a monster or a man. And when he asks that question at the start of the show, he uses his fingers to paint lines or deformities on his face, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. straps on this hunch, and then he puts on the signature green cloak and becomes Quasimodo. Right before so your eyes. Cool. So it, it's like a, a, a the notion of, well, it's that question. What makes a monster? What makes a man? You look at me and I'm a man. And then here I become the monster before your eyes. But am I any different or am I the same? What What is that? So I, I love that the question is sort of presented in that way as you watch this person transform. And at the end, they all do it. Oh, really? Which is, yeah, which is so that cool. Is really they cool. all take their fingers out and, and put the lines on their face. And so they didn't do it in our production, in the one that I saw, but I know that in some of them, they do give the story of, and I feel like this isn't actually how it went in the novel, but anyway, they tell the tale of how many years later, they found the remains of a hunched back man uh, holding the remains of a woman, which would then, I know, and I like, (laughs) oh, come on, like. And so, like, you know, Quasimodo made it out alive in the musical, but then went and died with her because he loved her that much. And I was just like, oh, I can't handle it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story. The cast recording is outstanding. Michael Arden is a fantastic singer. Gosh. Listen to him. Just, just listen to the song out there. Yes. Because Patrick Page as Frollo and Michael Arden as Quasimodo are a powerhouse. And that song is what 
convinced me well it, it's really what convinced me to buy the soundtrack in the first place the original cast recording mm -hmm. and i'm so glad i did because the whole rest of it is so good too god help the outcasts i remember being particularly good i watched the movie earlier and then i listened through the stage production it's all just so good guys i mean we could sit here and just keep telling you over and over and over again how how great alan Menken and stephen schwartz are but you just <laughs> need to go out and listen for yourself you do and i think just as a last note for me my my favorite song that I guess was included in the original animated film, but it was, it was sung by, who sang it? For Someday? All for One. All for One, thank you. Um, it was included in the original, but sung by All for One, and I think maybe it played during the credits? Yeah, it's the first song you hear during the credits. Okay, so I did not catch that. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's a featured song in the stage production, and it's by far my favorite song. It's, it's so heartbreaking, and it, it happens just before Esmeralda knows she's like defeated like she knows she's gonna die mm -hmm. and it's it's heartbreaking beautiful lyrics and and that's that's another thing that i think is elevated in this in the stage production is of course because there's more songs and there's more time the lyrics just kill me there's this one this is what i was looking up earlier it's in the finale and it's when the world is not and it's at its cruelest it's still the only world we've got and that sticks out to me every time and that's the same as we've been talking about this whole time is like be kind. Yeah, we have a responsibility to make the world a better place. Absolutely. It's the only one we've got. Like, yeah, it's... Ugh. You guys got to see this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with that, with our ringing endorsement, again, with yeah. the bells, <laughs> that is the end of the official 34th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for being with me tonight, Jesse. Yes, thank you for having me. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Podcast and at Pod on Twitter. Please, again, remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes to help us out and grow our audience. And if you have feedback or ideas, if you're interested in co-hosting and have a movie that you'd like to talk about, maybe, email at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And Jesse, where can people find you online? Well, Read us that Twitter name again. Previously stated, <laughs> my embarrassing <laughs> Twitter handle is at jnellybags. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, you heard that correctly. That is J-N-E-L-L-Y-B-A-G-S. And I'm on Instagram, which I think I actually have the same handle. <laughs> Excellent. I really Double need whammy. to change this. I need to change this. <laughs> Otherwise, you can email me at jessienelsonmusic at gmail.com. And Jesse's spelt with one S and an I, just like Jedi. My website is jessienelson.com. You can contact me through there as well. Awesome. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information, all the weird usernames can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you again, Jesse. It's been awesome talking to you about Alan Menken and Disney animated movies this week. Woohoo! Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 34. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 35. Have fun and celebrate movies. <laughs>